I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, the show where readers meet writers. It's good to have you listening. Until the bombs dropped from Japanese planes, destroying much of Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, black soldiers in the U.S. Army, Navy, and Air Force had endured scathing discrimination and injustice. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. As Dartmouth historian Matthew Delmond writes in his new book, with Pearl Harbor changing seemingly everything in America, black leaders hoped the military's policy of segregation would also be upended. But as Professor Delmont reveals, that was far too optimistic. Eager to volunteer for wartime deployment, black troops found themselves battling white supremacy at home, even as they would battle the aggressors of World War II. Delmont's new book recounts, quote, the depth of the disrespect to the black veteran whose sacrifice has been redacted from history. Matthew Delmont is a historian at Dartmouth College. He also happens to be a native son of Minnesota. His new book is titled Half American, the epic story of African-Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad. He joins us today from Vermont Public Radio. Uh, and Professor, where'd you grow up in Minnesota? Just to, just to get that out of the way. Uh, grew up uh, downtown Minneapolis, uh, 13th and Nicollet, Nicollet Towers, until uh, I was about 13 years old. Uh, then my mom and I moved out to West Bloomington, uh, where I went to high school. I actually mm-hmm. went to high school at St. Thomas Academy. It's good to have our Minnesota listeners hearing you again. But there are some friends in the audience, so it's good to have you on. Um, given what black troops had endured in the years before World War II, I guess I'm wondering why black leaders were daring to hope that Pearl Harbor would force the military to upset their own discriminatory policies. I mean, they'd witnessed how deep the white supremacy went, hadn't they? They had. Um, black leaders in the years leading up to World War II uh, were adamant that the military had to be integrated. Um, it's hard to remember at this point, but Looking back, as America enters World War II, the entire military is segregated. The Army, the Navy, the Air Corps, uh, and at the start of World War II, the Marines don't allow any black troops at all. Um, that was an affront to black Americans, and uh, civil rights activists at the time said so. They wanted to make sure black Americans had a chance to defend their country in World War II um, because black Americans have always uh, participated actively in the U.S. military. They've been a part of every military conflict the United States has ever been, um, been involved in. Um, black leaders in the lead-up to World War II wanted – the ability to have black Americans demonstrate their courage, their bravery, um, but also have a chance to partake in the the skills training and all the benefits that they knew the military would would provide uh, to all Americans. They want to make sure that those, those benefits, the, the pride that comes with military service would be extended to black Americans as well. I guess I'm trying to understand, though, given the record and the history, did, did black leaders think, well, there's going to be such a call for all hands on deck, and this is going to be such a Herculean effort to fight this war, they will have to change the policies that have excluded uh, black members of society from the services. I mean, was that the the belief, and that's why they thought that this was going to change so quickly? 
That was the hope. Um, the rhetoric when the United States enters World War II is that this is something that the entire country needs to get behind, that they're going to mobilize every aspect of uh, American industry, American manpower to, to fight and to win World War II. Um, more broadly, this is meant to be a fight for freedom and democracy. And so when black leaders hear the president say that, they hear politicians speak about the importance of America uh, defending freedom and democracy abroad, they want that same freedom and democracy at home. And so there, there is optimism, uh, even in spite of everything that they've, they've witnessed in the United States. There's optimism that World War II will finally be this moment where the military can be integrated. You write that within days of the Pearl Harbor attack, the NAACP goes to bat for black troops who want to sign up with the Navy at the messman level, and they reach out to the Secretary of the Navy. What, what's the word that they get back from the Secretary? When they reach out to the Secretary of the Navy, the response they get back uh, is twofold. One, they say that black troops can only serve in the messman branch in the Navy, um, in part because they the Navy, the official policy is they, they don't believe black troops have the, the courage, the bravery, the intelligence to be uh, officers, to take on larger leadership roles uh, within the Navy. Uh, more broadly, the Secretary of the Navy says that he's worried that integration will upset uh, the racial climate aboard ships. Um, he doesn't want the Navy, the military more broadly, doesn't want to be uh, what they call a social laboratory. And so they, they turn away the demands of, of black civil rights activists and say that they're only going to allow uh, black men to serve in the messman branch. Um, and that messman branch was really essentially waiting on white officers aboard Navy ships. They would do cooking and cleaning, uh, change the linens on, on beds. Black leaders saw that as um, a demeaning form of service, that it was, it was important to be involved in, in this military effort, but they wanted access to, to more, of the, um, more of the types of, of roles and opportunities, both in the Navy and in, in the Army. You know, what, what's notable about the argument that the Secretary of the Navy brings to this is how, how similar it is to what was happening when women wanted, you know, more uh, elevated roles in the military and what a lot of the institutional members of the military said about bringing women in. This, this, will, this won't work. It'll affect the cohesiveness. We don't want a social experiment when we're in the middle of wars. It, it, is, is it remarkable to you about how these tropes of history rise again and again? Absolutely. Uh, there's so many historical echoes that you can trace uh, from World War II through uh, the later efforts to make the military uh, something that's actually going to be open to, to all Americans and to really recognize the different skills and capabilities that Americans can bring to the service of their country. I think that's the thing that's most dumbfounding as a historian when you look back at this period of World War II is that segregation made no sense for a military that was trying to fight and win a global war. Um, they were turning away black volunteers who had college educations, who had language capabilities, who had skills that could directly benefit the war effort, that could help the military be more successful in the fight against uh, Japan and uh, Nazi Germany. It was only racial prejudice that prevented the military from being integrated. Uh, there was no strategic or, or um, logical reason to do it. It was, it was only racial prejudice that prevented it. And to look back some nearly eight decades now and see that, it's, it really speaks to the, the power of racial prejudice to convince relatively smart people that it's in their best interest to uh, to not take full full advantage of the, the tremendous capabilities and manpower that black Americans uh, could have brought to bear on the war effort. You know, it was interesting to read how the arguments that you've just described, 
how black newspapers were making those arguments and exposing the injustice of military policy. And I was intrigued to see that Roy Wilkins, who, as you know, spent some of his formative years in Minnesota and studied at the U of M, writes this fiery editorial in the crisis newspaper that exposes the absurdity of fighting Nazis in Europe and segregating and supporting segregation in the United States. I mean, I guess this speaks to, I want you to talk a little bit about the role that black newspapers played, but it also speaks to, as you've just said, how deeply embedded these ideas of segregation are to the detriment of the success that the United States is going to have in this you know, transformational war. Exactly. Um, Roy Wilkins has one of my favorite quotes in the entire book. He says, white folks would rather lose the war than give up the luxury of racial prejudice. And I think that encapsulates it so perfectly that we look back on World War II and we would like to think it was a unifying time in America. But when you actually look at the, the history, the actual sources and documents, it was anything but a unified time. There was tremendous racism and tremendous racial divisions across the United States. And black leaders, black newspapers, they call that out explicitly. Um, one of the key sources for the book are the, the reporting and editorials that were in black newspapers like the Pittsburgh Courier and the Chicago Defender and Baltimore African American. And what's so important about those sources is they were um, clear-eyed about both the stakes of the war and about what it meant to have the United States um, practicing this hypocrisy, to be claiming to fight for freedom and democracy abroad while at the same time having a segregated military. It's, again, one of those things when you pause and think about it, it, it just makes no sense to say that you're going to fight for freedom and democracy abroad and then to send a segregated military to fight those battles. And so Roy Wilkins, as one of the leaders of the NAACP, uh, he's on the front lines of, of fighting this battle, um, that he and others are um, constantly campaigning with um, President Roosevelt and others in the White House and with military officials to take steps to reduce discrimination in the military and to make sure that black troops are being uh, safeguarded, that they're being treated well on these military bases while they're in the United States. Just one note, uh, again, on the black press, um, since you really emphasize that, the role in the book, I mean, this is why I think it's notable how courageous it was for people like Wilkins and others to write in black newspapers about the the reality uh, and the absurdity of this. Because, I mean, you can imagine the patriotism. I don't, you don't have to imagine it. I can imagine the patriotism that is sweeping the United States. And any critique is probably going to be seen as unpatriotic and disloyal. And yet they felt that this was essential, that they raise these arguments in these editorials and in the newspaper pages. W would you speak to that? to the courageousness of this? Sure. What's so powerful about black newspapers in this era is that they were really demanding that America live up to its founding ideals. But that was controversial during World War II. Um, the kind of mm -hmm. editorials they're writing, the kind of critiques they're making and what they were demanding, a lot of white Americans, a lot of white newspapers said that black Americans are being disloyal for not essentially keeping mm -hmm. their mouth shut and just fighting in these segregated forces. The rallying cry for black Americans throughout World War II was for double victory, uh, to secure victory both over fascism abroad and victory over racism at home. That comes out of a letter that's written uh, by a man named James Thompson to the Pittsburgh Courier, which is one of the largest and most influential of the black newspapers. 
James Thompson was writing just after Pearl Harbor. He's from uh, Wichita, Kansas. And he wrote this um, amazing letter to the Pittsburgh Courier where he asks, should I sacrifice my life to live half American? And that's actually where I got the title for my book. Those words, they just stuck with me for the seven years I was working on this, this book. Should I sacrifice my life to live half American? And he was speaking powerfully to what so many Amer- black Americans felt when they looked at World War II, that they absolutely wanted to defend their country, but they didn't want to be demeaned in the service of their country. And they, they saw being drafted or volunteering into a segregated military to be demeaning. And for black newspapers to, to fight this fight, knowing that they were going to be surveilled and going to be censured by the federal government, by the FBI, and, and they were. They were they were harassed constantly by, by federal officials about the kind of critiques they were, they were bringing to bear. Um, it's, it's inspiring to, to think about the role that the press can play in trying to secure freedom for American citizens and really trying to, to encourage and force the country to live up to its ideals. I, I want to read for our listeners what you write about this idea of double V, double victory. Defeating the Axis powers was an important national priority for which thousands of black people would risk their lives. But defeating fascism on foreign battlefields was only half the fight. Victory would be incomplete unless it was also uprooting white supremacy. How many white Americans do you think understood that? Because I presume they were not seeing a lot of the editorials in the black press. I would say not enough white Americans understood what the double victory campaign really was about. Um, obviously, millions and millions of white American citizens, I don't want to suggest that there was one single white perspective on the war. But by and large, based on the public polling data we have, based on all of the reporting and editorials within mainstream white newspapers, and based on all of the um, recollections and oral history interviews that white veterans and white citizens have given from that era, white veterans were primarily focused White citizens were primarily focused on winning the war, defeating Japanese and Nazi Germany and the, the Axis forces, and then getting back home to the way things used to be. That was the the constant refrain among white Americans. They want things how they used to be, things as they were before the start of the war. And I think that's where you can see the biggest difference between what the war meant to white Americans and what it meant to black Americans. Um, obviously, after four years of grueling war, going back to how things used to be was obviously appealing to a lot of white Americans. But that's the exact opposite of what black Americans wanted. They did not want to go back to a country that was segregated in an apartheid fashion in, in the South and had racial discrimination in other parts of the country, including Minnesota. They wanted actual freedom and democracy in the United States. And I think that's what's so powerful about the double victory campaign is that it really was about having that military victory, which was crucially important. I mean, we, the United States and the Allies had to defeat Nazi Germany. We, we understand the the horrors of that racial ideology and everything it produced with the Holocaust, that military victory was crucial. But at the same time, um, black Americans were clear that that wasn't enough. That really only was half the battle. They needed to be able to come home and have actual freedom and democracy at home, to be able to vote, to be able to live in any neighborhood they chose, to be able to attend integrated schools. That was the second part of a much longer struggle for civil rights that took place place at home. Um, What I ended up describing in the book is – when I look back at the evidence, I, I really think for a lot of white Americans, they were fighting a single victory campaign, just the military victory. Mm-hmm. And they didn't fully appreciate the importance of um, really changing things at home and ending racism and, and white supremacy in the United States. 
I'm Kerry Miller. You're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas, my Friday book show, and I'm in conversation with Matthew Delmont. He's a historian and a professor at Dartmouth, and we're talking about his new book, Half American, The Epic Story of African Americans Fighting World War II at Home and Abroad. I think this is also the right moment to to raise uh, something that Isabel Wilkerson wrote about in Cast, and that you write about as well, and it's this idea, and maybe this is still news to to some Americans and some listeners, that the Third Reich studied America's racial discrimination laws as they were putting together the tenets of Nazism, and and I don't know that that is as well known as it clearly should be. That's a terrible stain on, you know, on American history and culture, isn't it? It is. Um, it's one of those parts about our nation's history that we would prefer not to talk about, but it's important that we do talk about it to really understand, honestly, what that historical time period was like. And then I think to be able to understand how that influences how um, things are shaped both um, in the U.S. and internationally today. Um, so as you're, you're noting, um, as... Adolf Hitler and the, the Third Reich come to power in Nazi Germany in the 1930s, they're explicitly looking at the U.S. for models, um, both in terms of how the United States treated uh, Native American populations, but even more explicitly, the kind of um, racial policies that existed in the Jim Crow South. Uh, everything from uh, how there was segregation on railroad cars to segregation in housing uh, to the um, lack of voting rights and the explicit um, violence that black Americans experienced uh, in the Jim Crow South. And what's important about recognizing that, I think this, sometimes people might think, oh, historians just discovered that in the last 10, 15, 20 years. But when you look back at um, black newspapers from the 1930s, as early as 1933, um, black Americans, activists, editorialists are are calling out explicitly that Nazi Germany is modeling itself after the Jim Crow South. Um, wow. As these policies mm. are being put in place uh, against Jews in Europe, they're making those explicit points that Jews are now being segregated on railroad cars. That looks like the kind of segregation that exists for black Americans in the South. The kind of racial violence um, Jewish people experience with Kristallnacht and other um, other programs in, uh, in Europe. They make explicit reference to the Tulsa Race Massacre and other um, acts of racial violence that black communities experienced. These are not things that historians just stumbled upon recently. These are things that were explicitly noted in the 1930s. And the reason that's important is that for black Americans, they recognized the extreme threat that Hitler and fascism posed. Um, for black Americans, what I argue in the book, Pearl Har um, that World War II didn't start with Pearl Harbor, but it actually started much earlier in the 1930s, once they recognized uh, the rise of Nazi Germany, once Italy invades Ethiopia, and then uh, with the Spanish Civil War in 1936, once uh, General Franco's fascist forces uh, staged a military coup. All those events, as they're transpiring in Europe in the 1930s, um, African Americans are pointing to them and saying, this is the start of the Second World War. Even though America hasn't mm. formally entered the war yet, black Americans understand mm -hmm. that this isn't just bad for Europe. It's not just bad for, for Jews in Europe. This is bad for the world because they understand how deep this racial ideology goes. And I think it's so important for Americans to understand that. Um, that this is that Black Americans are among the first and fiercest critics of fascism, because it gives us a, a history and a language to be able to understand. Um, I think everything that's swirling around around us today. Yeah, 
It, can I ask, though, as a as a young man who is clearly interested in history, you'd go on to, to be a history professor. I mean, are these, was any of this taught in, in your World War II sections in, I don't know, middle school and, and high school? I mean, this is something that I have to say was completely absent from what I learned about World War II, you know, in those formative years, and then went on to, you know, take history classes in college. None of this was discussed. Yeah, I went to junior high and high school in the 90s and then college in the late 1990s. And my experience in my high school history classes and had great teachers, had a tremendous education um, at St. Thomas Academy. I don't recall much of this being being dealt with in our history textbooks. Um, and I think that's common for how history is generally taught. And this is certainly no critique of um, how history is taught at the junior high and high school level. Um, you have to cover so much information in an American history class to go from the colonial period all the way up to the 1970s or 80s that you can only dedicate so much time to each historical time period. But I think as a result, the way that black American history is typically taught in high schools is you get some content related to the Civil War um, and the end of slavery, and then you get more content related to the Civil Rights Movement in the 1950s and 60s. But there really is a gap in terms of how World War II is typically covered, that typically World War II is taught predominantly from the white perspective, um, that you might get a passing reference to Doris Miller, who's one of the heroes of Pearl Harbor, who's a black messman. You might get reference to mm -hmm. the Tuskegee Airmen. Um, I think hopefully at this point almost everyone knows about the Tuskegee Airmen who broke barriers in, in the Air Corps. Air Corps. But, but generally speaking, that's a couple paragraphs out of, a, out of a, a much larger section on World War II. And I think the problem with that is um, it's not just about adding in more events and more names to to kind of shoehorn black people and black units into this history. When you put black Americans at the center of the story of World War II, it actually changes almost everything about how we understand the war. Uh, it makes us think differently about the start date and the end date of the war. It makes us think differently about what the goals of the war were. Uh, and it makes us think differently about what did victory actually mean. Um, I think that's, for me as a historian, what's so important about um, trying to talk about this history honestly. and. I think it's what's so important mm -hmm. about these battles we're having in our country right now about how we how we teach history, um, that it's never been just about adding a, a handful more examples or figures to our textbooks, but it's about a real honest accounting of, of what happened historically, um, both the good and the bad aspects. And really foregrounding or centering the black American experience opens up um, a host of different perspectives that um, I believe, in, in my experience, have been uh, transformative in terms of understanding um, everything that our, our nation has been through and, and hopefully providing a foundation to, to chart different um, different trajectories in the future. You know, I have to say, that's why I'm a little surprised to hear you say not to be critical of the way history is taught. If anybody, you know, <laughs> could be critical, it's you having done this research and and, as you've said, coming into a much fuller understanding of centering the black American experience in World War II. I mean, I, I wonder how much of this, not to, again, not to lay all this at the feet of, you know, middle school and high school history teachers, but isn't that part of the reason that we live in this, I think what you call a collective amnesia of racism in U.S. history? And in some ways, I think the older one gets the more reluctant one is to upend 
some of the things that you just take as absolute truth. I think that's true. Um, I think for me, when I think about education, I think about history. Um, I think our, our formal schooling in junior high, high school, and for those who are able to go to college in college, is the, what I hope is the starting point of a, a lifelong effort to try to understand history and think particularly understand our nation's history. And so that's why I think um, the kind of, of work and, and service that teachers do in junior high and high school, um, I can never be critical of, of my colleagues who teach at that level because they are asked to do so much, often with so little. And mm-hmm. I think for historians, what our job is to, is to not so much teach events, dates, and facts, but to teach an approach to history, a, a methodology of what it means to study history, that it's about evidence-based inquiry and that's about curiosity. And I think if we can instill those those skills in students and instill those skills in, in citizens more broadly, I think that gives us the tools to be able to evaluate um, the kind of uh, claims that we see, um, both with regards to history, but also with regards to politics more broadly. Um, and I think that's the kind of mindset that that all American citizens really need to take when we're having these really engaged debates and discussions about what it means to understand our nation's history. That it's not just mm-hmm. about let's memorize an additional set of facts, but it's about let's have a, uh, an outlook that appreciates that whatever positions we're going to take has to be based on evidence, that our discussions and, and reckoning with the past has to be based in, in actual evidence. And then we need to be curious that part of the, the joy of being a historian is that we're always discovering new things, um, that there's no single uh, final version of the past, but that we're discovering new things. And that complicates our, um, our understanding of, of history. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about the power of lifelong learning, and I couldn't agree more. But but I don't know that that learning – I have a feeling that that learning may stop uh, for many people. <laughs> I can hear you kind of chuckling <laughs> right a little too soon. But um, you mentioned the Tuskegee Airmen. Um, and they and your chapters on the Tuskegee Airmen are really remarkable. I learned a lot. I, I wondered if you'd just introduce us to some of the – the pilots who gravitated to this remarkable core uh, in Tuskegee. Yeah. Um, so I think the Tuskegee Airmen are probably the most famous black figures from World War II. And so one of my goals with the book was to try to um, add additional information that most readers uh, hopefully wouldn't be familiar with. And so one of the main figures I, I focus on is uh, Benjamin O. Davis Jr., um, <clears throat> who graduates from West Point in 1936. Uh, when he graduates, he's only the fourth black American to ever graduate from West Point, and he's the first in the 20th century. So it's a really big deal for him to graduate in 1936. But the problem is the Army essentially has no idea what to do with him. The Army really isn't set up to have spaces or leadership opportunities for black officers. Davis desperately wants to be a pilot, but at that point, uh, the Army Air Corps uh, isn't allowing black pilots at all. And so they sent him to teach at uh, black military schools, which is a similar role that his father had been assigned to. Um, Benjamin O. Davis seniors, one of the first um, black uh, generals in, in the military. And so ben- Benjamin O. Davis Jr. comes from this tremendous military uh, pedigree. He's got um, uh, a stature that any um, white officer would, would envy. But because of the color of his skin, he doesn't have many opportunities uh, afforded to him in the late 1930s after he graduates from West Point. In May of 1941, uh, he's among the first group of uh, cadets uh, sent to Tuskegee to begin flight training. So in part due to the persistent activism of the black press and black civil rights activists, the Army finally opens a training base in Tuskegee, Alabama for uh, these these black pilots. 
the challenge in those first early years from 1941 to early 1943 uh, is that Tuskegee pilots just keep training and training and training on the space in Alabama. Whereas white pilots are training for about six weeks and then being sent off to war, uh, the black pilots are just doing these repeat training cycles in what seem like endless month after month after month. And they're asking, when will we finally get deployed? Uh, And the the army doesn't yet have an answer for them. Uh, It's not until spring of 1943 that Davis and his uh, fellow airmen finally deploy to the Mediterranean uh, and see combat for the first time. Uh, And they do a remarkably good job um, fighting against uh, Nazi pilots in in the Mediterranean, first in 1943 and then later in the war, 1944 and 1945. One of the interesting challenges for the Tuskegee Airmen is that they have to both fight against Nazi pilots, fight against uh, a military enemy, but they also have to navigate the racism and prejudice of their own commanders, Uh, that some of the first white commanders of the Tuskegee Airmen are actually not in favor of this experiment of having black pilots in the military. And so they pull petty pranks on them, like scheduling meetings at um, different times so that the airmen arrive late um, or withholding briefing information. Um, things escalate after that first um, first engagement in the Mediterranean because the after-action reports that some of the white commanders file uh, say that the, Tuske- the Tuskegee airmen performed poorly in combat, that they weren't um, uh, innovative enough, or they weren't courageous enough in in flight. I mean, these are lies. These yeah. these are lies. Um, they don't speak to the actual performance of the the black pilots. Um, but it becomes a um, a military or I'm sorry, a, a media issue that it gets picked up in Time Magazine and Newsweek, and now you've got these white publications saying, you know, maybe black pilots, um, or black Americans shouldn't be pilots after all. Um, it's only through both kind of PR efforts uh, by the black press and then through subsequent um, combat exploits by the black pilots that they're, they're finally able to, to prove themselves. And what's powerful, I think, about the story of these Tuskegee airmen is that they, they recognized how much weight was on their shoulders, that they weren't just fighting mm-hmm. for their, themselves, but they recognized if, if they failed, it could be generations before other black Americans had the chance to be pilots. Um, the last thing I'll mention about Tuskegee is um, one of the things I try to show in the book is that when we talk about the Tuskegee Airmen, it's not just the pilots, but there was this tremendous mm-hmm. um, ground personnel that supported the pilots in their their flight. There were black women who were nurses at Tuskegee Air Base. There were uh, weathermen who had to map the the weather forecast for the day. And without the the work of those meteorologists, uh, black pilots couldn't have taken off. And then there were hundreds and hundreds of black mechanics who uh, serviced these planes on the ground. And so there was really this this world of of black excellence that that gets formed at Tuskegee. I think we ought to, before we move on, I think we ought to mention what happens with William Hasty. He's a civilian aide to War Secretary Stimson, and he's so angry about the injustice of the situation at Tuskegee that he resigns, and he tells Stimson, men cannot be humiliated over a long period of time without shattering of morale and destroying of combat efficiency. And again, this is when I think we, the reader, realize the power of white supremacy and how America is hobbling itself so it can maintain this illusion of white supremacy. And there are people who are speaking to this loud and clear. I guess I'm going to ask you again, uh, Professor, do you think average Americans just really average white Americans really unaware of what this meant to the 
you know, potential success of the war effort and how this was unfolding in different parts of of the South? I think average white Americans were unaware, um, in part because they didn't want to know, um, but also in part because for most white Americans at the time period, this kind of segregation was viewed by them as normal um, or in some cases as uh, the right way to structure American society. Um, I mean, in the entire South, Jim Crow segregation is the the law of the land. Um, So that is the explicit um, legal policy that structures all aspects of, of life in in the American South. In other parts of the country, in the Northeast, the Midwest, and the West, there's racial discrimination by more underhanded tactics. Uh, and so to try to get a kind of pulse of what the average white American was thinking about race relations and at that time, they weren't particularly disturbed by the idea of racial segregation because they had grown up around it, they had benefited from it, and they saw no reason to, to challenge it. And so the kind of protests and frustrations that black Americans expressed during the war, by and large, are are not heard by white Americans, in part because they're not being mm-hmm. reported on in the New York Times and Chicago Tribune and the kind of papers that, that white um, Americans are reading. But also, unfortunately, because most white Americans just don't want to hear it. Um, they These are not concerns that they see as being their concerns. Um, William Hayes, I'm really glad you mentioned, for, read, for listeners who aren't familiar with him, um, he's among the, the most... Um, uh, powerful black leaders of that era. He was the dean at Howard Law School um, who really helped to make Howard Law School into what he described as the the, the West Point for, for black lawyers. He's a mentor to Thurgood Marshall. Um, and he really lays the foundation for a, a generation of lawyers who go on to fight and win most of the most important civil rights battles and civil rights cases of the, the 20th century. William Hasey accepts this position as the civilian um, uh, aid to the Secretary of the War, Henry Simpson, um, because he believes that that access to the, the halls of power, access to decision makers, might have some um, some hope of improving the conditions for, for black Americans during the war. After more than a year in that role, he doesn't believe that anymore. Um, he sees what's happening at military mm-hmm. bases across the South, the kind of uh, hostile treatment, racism, and in many cases violence black troops are encountering. And then Tuskegee is really the tipping point for him. Um, He sees the kind of uh, racism disrespect that these black Americans are being shown. Um, And as that quote you read illustrates, he recognizes this is a a dangerous, dangerous game that the military and the country is playing in asking black Americans to risk and in some cases give their lives for a country that is going to openly disrespect them in this way. and again, and for me as a historian, going back and reading <clears throat> some of the those kind of statements, um, I think it just speaks so powerfully to how clearly Black Americans understand understood the hypocrisy of of the United States in that time period. Mm-hmm. Um, that it just it made no sense for the U.S. military and the U.S. more broadly to not take full advantage of the the skills and patriotism of black citizens. It was only racial prejudice that prevented them from from doing that. You must have read what Hasty said to Stimson the way I did, which with this must have been an anguished decision for him because here he is in a place where I'm sure he accepted the job thinking he could be, you know, influential from the inside. 
And then he has to accept that everything he stands for, everything he's aware of, of you know, what's happening on the battlefields and on these bases is status quo. And then he has to decide whether, right, to step out of this position of, of influence and accept that very little has changed and that he can't do anything to change it. What do you think that was like? Exactly. I mean, it was an extremely hard position that he found himself in, and then uh, Truman Gibson, who, re- who replaces uh, Hasty as um, civilian aide. And it's a, a position that a lot of black Americans have found themselves in, not just in the military, but in uh, other uh, professional spaces in the years since World War II, where this idea that you can have access to decision makers, and hopefully by having that access, you can change the direction things are going to take. But there's always this recognition that your participation in that system can be used as window dressing mm-hmm. to make things seem like they're going better than they are. Hasty absolutely recognized that. Um, that he recognized that by taking on this role, it was going to allow the military and the White House to say, well, you know, to say to black Americans, things are under control. We've got William Hasty, whom you respect. He's in this role. Things will be okay. They say the same thing once Truman Gibson gets in that role. That's a, a really, really hard position for a black leader of hasty stature and, and intellect to find himself in. Um, and so it's, it's this tightrope that, um, that hasty and others have had to walk of, of trying to leverage access in a way that's going to benefit black Americans without being taken advantage of. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to a conversation about American history with Matthew Delmont. He is a uh, historian and professor of history at Dartmouth. And he's out with a new book titled Half American, the epic story of African-Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad. I have to say, here's, here's something else that was really illuminating about the political side of this, is the character and the nature of the congressional debates where, as you, as you mentioned, Southern members of Congress are unashamedly maneuvering to maintain white supremacy. Can you talk a little bit about the nature of those debates and, you know, what it revealed about, you know, the political ruling class in the country at the time? I think it's one important thing to understand when we talk about segregation in the United States in this era, or talk about sort of the Jim Crow South, is that these weren't just a handful of, of isolated opinions by um, by racist citizens, but this went to the, the highest levels of power in, in our government, that you had white congressmen and senators from these southern states uh, who were not democratically elected because, by and large, black citizens couldn't vote in those southern states, so they were elected almost principally by, by white voters, but they then represent states that have huge numbers of, of black citizens. And they're explicit in their their belief that whites are are and should be on the top of the racial hierarchy. Um, they, they believe explicitly in white supremacy, they, and they make no no bones about it. They, they're saying this on the, the floor of the Senate, that they, they believe the white race I mean, is it's the, in the, the record. Yes. Yeah. It's in, it's in the congressional record. And again, I think that's why it's important to go back to historical sources, right? That sometimes we can use euphemisms to talk about racism in the past. <laughs> these, these racist senators and congressmen used no euphemisms. They explicitly talked about their pride in having white blood in their veins. This was um, among the most explicit forms of racism you could, you could have articulated. 
the problem that posed, though, for, for black Americans and for civil rights activists is that when policies were being debated, such as um, policies around discrimination, defense issues, for example, you had white congressmen and senators who had key positions on key committees who were actively opposed to any sort of non-discrimination provisions that might have ensured that more black Americans would have a chance at these extremely important mm -hmm. and lucrative defense industry positions. When it came to discussions about the GI Bill later in the war or discussions about desegregating the military after the end of the war, again, you have white congressmen and senators representing southern states who are explicitly opposed to equality for black Americans weighing in on, in, in many cases, blocking legislation that would move the country closer to racial equality. That's was extremely frustrating for black Americans at the time, both because it led to negative policy outcomes, but also because they understood that these congressmen and senators shouldn't have even been representing their states if, if black people could actually vote in Alabama, Mississippi. And so they, they recognized quite clearly that the United States is not an actual functioning democracy in that time period. And, and they're doing everything they can to try to find uh, a way out of that, um, that system that they're locked into. Will you remind me about when fuller deployments start to happen out of necessity and out of pressure that black leaders and and the black press are applying? You know, when we're starting to see a greater number of black uh, servicemen end up overseas. So by late 1943, early 1944, you start to see a much larger number of black servicemen being deployed overseas. Um, and as you note, that's largely due to necessity. Uh, at the start of the war, um, black troops are largely um, stationed stateside. Um, they are put into black units that are going to be doing uh, supply and logistical work in the, in the war. Um, and military planners are reluctant to deploy them unless it's absolutely uh, crucial militarily. But by 1943, 1944, start of 1944, um, the um, American military and the Allies need more troops abroad. And so by that point, you start to see a larger number of, of black troops deployed. Do I remember this correctly, though, that even as uh, black men, mostly men, I mean, there were women I know supporting the effort, are performing well and serving their country and going into these battlefields overseas, even there's distortion about the stories that are coming back, not only about the Tuskegee Airmen, but about some of the other, the bravery that some of these troops are showing on the battlefield. I mean, lies are being spread about what is happening. And I, if I read this right, the white press is reporting some of that. And again, members of Congress are taking that up in their arguments to maintain segregationist status quo. Do I remember that right? Yeah, you do remember that right. Um, and so one of, the, one of the things that happens for, for black troops, um, by and large, black troops are in um, supply and logistical roles, so they're, they're not placed into combat units. But by the middle of 1944, by the end of 1944, you start to have a larger number of um, black troops in infantry divisions who are in combat. They, much like the Tuskegee Airmen, receive a huge amount of uh, scrutiny, um, and they receive a a large number of critiques, both from their own white officers, but also from the white press. And I think what's telling about those is that we have examples of, of white units who encountered military defeats or, or military setbacks, that obviously in, in a war of this scale, not every 
battle is going to be successful. Mm-hmm. Not every um, uh, unit is going to uh, emerge victorious in every single um, every single engagement. For white units, when they encountered setbacks or got defeated at uh, specific battles, they <clears throat> often were, were praised for their their pluck in combat or their um, their willingness to to give it the best try that they could and to to battle on in the face of adversity. That was not the case with these black infantry units when they encountered um, setbacks or when they they lost ground, that they were critiqued extensively by their military commanders and by by the white press, and their poor performance in battle, which when you actually look back at the reports, um, the, those claims of poor, of poor performance were actually exaggerated in many cases. But this, these claims about their poor performance in battle were seen as disparag- disparagements not just on those specific individuals or units, but on black Americans more broadly. And I think that's where we can see it fit into um, a set of beliefs that a lot of members of the military had about the capacities of black Americans, that uh, between World War I and World War II, um, the Army War College prepares uh, a document for uh, military leaders that describes black Americans in very disparaging, demeaning terms. It, it says that they don't have the intellectual capacity, the bravery, the courage to be to, good, to be good soldiers or good leaders. That's the official position of the U.S. Army in the lead up to World War II, and that's what a lot of white commanders come to believe, and that influences and inflects how they understand the performance of infantry units later on in the war. And so you do see uh, critiques of, of these black units in mainstream white newspapers and magazines in a way that you just wouldn't see those same uh, media outlets critique uh, white troops. Mm-hmm. So as the Allies are moving toward victory in Europe, you've written this, what I thought was a very poignant passage about what black troops overseas are witnessing. And you write, as the Allies liberated towns and cities from Nazi control, black troops saw white Southern soldiers raise the Confederate flag alongside or instead of the U.S. flag to celebrate their victory. And then you go on to write about how Black troops saw courtesies extended to German POWs that black troops were not afforded. And that, that was pretty breathtaking. What, what happened? What did they see? This is one of those things that I, I didn't know when I started this project. Um, but as I uh-huh. looked at the records, the, the archival documents and the newspaper accounts, I kept seeing references to Confederate flags being, um, being flown during World War II. And you'd want to kind of pause and, and think about that and think, why would that be? Um, the Confederacy um, broke away from the United States and they were fighting to maintain slavery and to, to end the United States. This was a, a military that was explicitly fighting against the, the U.S. military. And so you would think, why would members of the U.S. military be bringing the Confederate flag to war and, and running it up um, mm-hmm. on flagpoles? And, and the answer, I, think, I guess quite obviously, is that for these white troops who – packed the Confederate flag from home and brought it with them and then chose to raise that flag either alongside or instead of the Stars and Stripes, they understood that flag to be what they were fighting for. They were fighting for this ideal or version of a white Southern culture um, that for them meant racism and Jim Crow segregation and a, a racial hierarchy in which they were in the top position. And I think if listeners, if you just pause and think about that for a moment, think about what it would look like to be a black soldier 
who's landed on the beaches of Normandy, who's pushing across France, defeating Nazis in these towns, and then seeing your fellow soldiers hoist up the Confederate flag. It it almost defies imagination. Um, but they were obviously, black soldiers were obviously um, tremendously, tremendously angry and disappointed in this. Um, because for them, they understood what this fight was about. They understood they had to defeat not only the Nazis, but defeat that racial ideology. And to see the Confederate flag raised, they, they knew what that flag meant. They knew that that flag meant slavery. They knew that that flag meant uh, a system of racial relations in which they were always going to be second class. And some of the most powerful editorials I saw in black, the black newspapers after that asked pretty directly, you know, what's wrong with the stars and stripes? Like, I think that's the other part of that equation. It's like, why, why would you think so little of the flag of the United States that you would fly the flag of the Confederacy instead of the flag of the United States, the flag that you presumably are, are meant to be fighting for? Um, and I think, it, it, again, it just speaks to the bigger question of, like, what, what was the war about? Um, I think we can e- too easily fall into the trap of thinking that all Americans had the same answer to that question, what, were the, what the war was about. But the reality is there were many different answers to that question that were being articulated in 1945 um, and that too many white Americans uh, were not interested in actually having freedom and democracy in the United States. And then that story about – or those stories about um, Nazi troops – Nazi prisoners of war are being treated better than black soldiers. Mm-hmm. That's one of the most consistent stories you'll hear from black veterans. Uh, it shows up in uh, dozens and dozens of oral histories wow. and letters hmm. and newspaper accounts that whether they're in Europe or back in the United States, um, they remark on how Nazi prisoners of war who had just weeks or months earlier been trying to kill American soldiers are being treated better than black troops were, than black American citizens were. Uh, They're allowed to eat in parts of dining halls alongside white Americans that black Americans can't access. They're allowed to sit in parts of movie theaters. They are given all sorts of privileges um, and and access to to respect and better treatment that has been consistently denied to black Americans. And black soldiers just look at this and they shake their heads um, because they, they understand that in some ways they've been they've been duped almost. Um, that mm-hmm. they've been led to believe that they were fighting alongside their white uh, countrymen. Um, and when they see um, white soldiers being chummy with Nazi prisoners of war in this way, they realize that back back at home um, th- there's no real intention to to move any closer to equality than before the war. Matthew Delmon's book is called Half American, The Epic Story of African Americans Fighting World War II at Home and Abroad. Matthew, thank you. Thank you for a really enlightening conversation. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure talking with you.